It is well with my soul. We are family. Let's just worship the Lord together. You never thought Sister Sledge was a worship leader, right? That's the Church of Jesus Christ. Just in case you missed it, let me put it up on the screen behind me. She said, we are family and we are giving love in a family dose. This morning as we continue our teaching series in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is going to talk about some family matters and what it looks like to be giving love tangibly to a, in a family dose to one another. And let me, let me remind us how passionate Paul is about the family. The apostle's favorite name for believers was, was the word brethren or family. He uses it 60 times in his epistles. He uses it 27 times alone in First and Second Thessalonians uh, when he writes these letters. Paul saw the local church as a family. The late theologian John Stott calls this section of First Thessalonians Christian community or, and I quote, how to be how to be a gospel church. All throughout the New Testament, the church is described as a family, and we are challenged to treat each other as brothers and sisters. Last week, Jim encouraged us to be ready and to do right. He pointed out that Jesus could come back at, at, at any time. Thus, thus, we need to be living out the ethos of Jesus' teachings. This week, Paul is going to get really practical, and he's going to teach us how to do right. But it's not just a, a, a list of do's and don'ts. Our text is about gospel life. That is the way brothers and sisters should live together because we've been united by a, a risen Savior. So do me a favor. If you haven't already, please turn in your, your Bibles or your Bible apps to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's a New Testament book. If you're looking at your Bible, it's to the right. Also, if you want to follow along with my outline, the, the version Bible has it, so you might want to go there. Now, I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to start with verses 14 and 15, and then finish with verses 12 and 13 for the sake of some practical application. At the end of my talk, you'll see why I'm, I'm doing this. All right, first off this morning, gospel life means this. It means that as a family, we love one another in, in tangible, tangible ways. Verse 14. And we urge you, here it is, brethren, family, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with, with everybody, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So practically, what does it look like to love one another? Here are five acts of love from these verses. Let's break it down together. First, we love one another when we warn one another. When we warn one another. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. The Greek word for idle is a military expression that means to break ranks. It means to get out of line. It was a word that was used to describe ancient Greek soldiers who refused to serve their country. It refers to the undisciplined and irresponsible soldier who is idle, and they're not where they're supposed to be. Like, we're in this battle. We're on the battlefield, and we're fighting the enemy, and, and I look to my left, or I look to my right, and, and some of my fellow soldiers, they're either not there, or they have already broke rank. They're gone. In the church, just like any family, there are those who aren't doing what they're what they're called to do. 
in this case, it appears as though believers were, were being physically lazy. They weren't working, and that lack of, of work led them to being spiritually lazy. Specifically, they were being disruptive through, through gossip. And, and we know this was a problem because Paul struggled with this in his first letter to the Thessalonians, but then apparently they didn't get it right because he, he writes back and he uses the same language, the same words. Uh, we want Scripture to interpret Scripture this morning, so let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. It's pretty long, but it's pretty important. Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, family, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked. We worked day and night. We labored. We toiled. Like We knew it was our right as apostles for you to, to feed us as servants of God, but we wanted to be an example for you, he says. He says, in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate, we work day and night. From, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. This is pretty interesting. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle. There it is. And disruptive, they are not busy, but they are busy bodies. Some people we command, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. Apparently, when we're not working, it leads, as we should, it leads to a lot of free time. And a lot of free time isn't always good for the family of God. So in verse 14, Paul says that we are to warn them about all this, this free time. A better word is admonish. It's a very strong word in the Greek. It literally means to put into the mind. When a brother or sister becomes unruly, Paul says that we're to put into their mind some truths. Basically, it means that we're to talk some sense into them. It implies a personal, face-to-face -face confrontation, precisely the kind of situation that most of us want to avoid at all costs. It is hard, painful, difficult work. It is scary. In its barest, barest form, it means to speak to someone about their, their conduct. But because we're family, we do this. We do this because we want our brothers and sisters to be more like Jesus, and we want the family to be healthy, and laziness and, and gossip are, are never healthy. So what do we do? Like, I know, like, right now in our culture, the last thing we ever want to do is confront someone face to face, like social media, a text, Facebook. Well, we're okay with that, but, but Paul says, as a family, because the kingdom of Jesus Christ matters so much, because your brother and sister matters so much, the fruit that they'll bear or not bear matters so much. If someone is, in this case, being lazy and being disruptive and literally going from house to house as a busybody and gossiping, Paul says you, you need to confront them. But we do it lovingly. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 5. Better is, is open rebuke than, than hidden love. Verse 6, wounds from a, a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Like So here's what an enemy does. An enemy is, is too cool for school. An enemy is like, I'm in the moment, and I don't want anyone to dislike me, and I don't want to be the person that always says the right thing and comes off with, as the coolest person. 
And so you, you may be in a destructive place in your life. You may be not working like you should. You may be gossiping like you shouldn't. And you, you, may be, you literally may be in a place where you're at, at a point of, of, of train wrecking your marriage or maybe an addiction and, and no one will say anything. A friend will lovingly wound you. An enemy will say, hey, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Matthew. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Jesus says in Matthew 18 and verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, now underline that. Don't go to 16 people before you go to your brother and sister. Go to them. Take them aside. If they listen to you, you have you have won them over. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Here it is again, family, brethren, brothers and, and sisters. If someone is, is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, that's pretty important. As you walk by and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you should restore that person how? Gently. Gently. Like, you what tends to happen is we get so angry and we get so worked up inside and we let it build and we let it build. And so when we finally are going to point something out, our, our nonverbal and our verbal is so angry and so horrible that they can't receive it. That's why God is like, don't let the sun go down. There's something going on you're not sure about? Go to that person right away, just the two of you, and gently say, hey, I'm a little concerned here. I'm a little worried about this. Second way that we love one another tangibly is that we encourage. Verse 14, again, Paul says, encourage the disheartened. If the first way is severe, this one is the opposite. Not everyone is, is unruly. Not everyone is disruptive. Many, many are just disheartened. Now, this word is a little different. It literally means to be, this is an interesting word. I've been thinking about this. It means to be small-souled. What Paul is saying is that at one point when you got into the race, your soul was big. You remember that, right? Some of you, not everyone, everyone's, you know, story is different. But many of you in this room, like you heard the gospel and you, respond by, you responded by faith. And you're like, I got to tell everybody and I got to serve. And I got to be pure and holy and vocal, not perfect. But man, I love King Jesus and it's all about the kingdom. And then for whatever reason or reasons... The world, the flesh, the devil, the culture, whatever. It, it whittled away at you and your soul went from really big to really small. You remember, like some of you back in the day, like you could not get enough of King Jesus. And now when you see someone on fire for Jesus, you're like, that won't last. Been there, done that. These people are discouraged because they're having trouble finding the courage they need. It especially includes those who shrink from persecution, who fall under temptation, who face trials at work, at home, at school, who find the Christian life one continual struggle. Paul says, this is really important. We are to encourage them literally. You might want to write this down. I should have put it on the screen. I didn't. Literally, it means we are to put courage into them. Their great big soul of courage is shrunk to a small soul with little courage. And Paul says, put courage into them. Let me ask you a question. 
Have you put courage into anybody lately? Have you put courage into anybody lately? What does that look like for you? Wives, husbands, parents, co-workers, grandparents. Let me tell you what's really easy to do. What's really easy to do is to steal courage from somebody through negativity and gossip and anger and judge, being judgmental, inappropriately judgmental. That's really easy to do. What's really difficult to do is to come up to somebody who is lacking courage, whose soul is small, and you know it, and to put courage back in. Two weeks ago, I was, I was up here teaching, and I was talking about when Jesus returns, and our only hope over death is his resurrection. And I talked about it had been a season of death for me, many funerals. I did my mother-in-law's funeral. And I, I reflected in this service, especially in the second service, that, that I had lost three children myself. Actually, four. One was a miscarriage. We held three of our babies in our hands as they breathed their last breath. And anytime I, I preach messages like that or do a funeral or whatever it might be, there's a sense of me that just is a little discouraged. Like I become a little small-souled. So I'm standing up here between first and second service. That's always a little bit awkward. As a, as a pastor, you're like, I want to preach and encourage, but God, I could use a little encouragement right now. And I'm standing in there between first and second service, and a guy comes with me, a guy I know who struggles with, with just being overly affectionate. He's just real quiet, and he has trouble um, expressing his emotions. And I'm standing up there, and he comes up to me, and he says, he says to me, I, I, want, to, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. And he said, can I pray for you? And I said, please pray for me. And he put his hand on me, which I know was a big deal for him. Not, not for me, but for him it was a big deal. And he began to pray this incredible prayer of encouragement. He's pouring courage into me. I, I knew it took everything for him to do. Afterward, he looks up at me and he says, that was a horrible prayer, wasn't it? <laughs> I said, take that low self-esteem. I rebuke it in Jesus' name. I didn't say that, but I thought that. My other thought bubble was this. I said to him, that was an incredible prayer. Thank you so much. But my thought bubble was this. Brother, you just poured, in, you just poured courage into my small soul. I needed that. Let me ask you a question. Have you put courage into anybody Lately? Third way we love one another is we help. Paul says in verse 14, help the weak. There is a third group of people we can serve in the church. Paul calls them the weak. You say, man, that sounds, that's rough. Why is he saying that? He's not being derogatory. He's just saying that these are people who are without strength. These are people who are a step beyond being disheartened. They've completely, completely run out of gas. They are the ones who are exhausted, burnt out, wrung out, and worn out. They are morally, spiritually, and physically drained. They feel as if they can't go on. Often these are the ones that are, are most easily overlooked, right? They come to a church, especially this size or a growing church, and they kind of sneak in the back and they leave early. and They're just trying to get through another day. The disheartened were, were running strong, and they became worn out the weak never got in the race 
And I just got to confess to you, in our culture, we tend to go, you know, I haven't got time for the week. I'm going to go with the goers. Paul says to help them. Now, this is really important. You might want to write this down. The word help there literally means to hold oneself over against. Let me demonstrate what this looks like. Kevin Rusak, will you come here? Kevin just came back from vacation. And he didn't know I'm going to do this. He's paid too much. So, we, we need to pay him more, first of all. But, so, so what, we te- what we tend to do with the week is, we tend to hold him like this. And we, then we tend to say things like this. Well, they're weak for a reason. They're weak because they did this or they didn't do that. It's their, it's their upbringing or they made bad choices. Or, and Paul says, no, no, don't do that. Paul says to hold them up against yourself. Paul says literally. I know this is awkward for you, Kevin, but not for me. Hold them like this. That feels kind of good, doesn't it? I, I'm a Jewish man. I grew up with hugs and kisses from other men. I just did. Okay? How's that feel? Paul says, Paul says, don't let the weak go. Hold them tight. Don't let them drift away. If need be, pick them up and carry them. Let me give you an illustration, which I just heard Thursday night I thought was really cool. I was at a graduation, and uh, it was for a guy who, who's become an RN and been a cool kind of lifelong journey. And the guys were sitting in the garage and all the ladies were sitting in the living room. I don't know why it just worked out that way. All these guys happened to be bike, bike, bike riders, like mountain bikers and, you know, road bike. And, and I, did, I mean, I have a mountain bike. Um, it, it's dusty, but not, not because I've been riding it, but it's because it's sitting in the garage too long, right? And so I've got this mountain bike and I'm thinking about what does it mean? What does it mean to be a biker? And these guys begin to give stories about bicycling. And so one of the guys, which is really interesting, one of the guys, Jay begins to tell a story about one guy. Ten of them, and a bunch of those guys were sitting there, ten of those guys went on an 80-mile bike ride. And they went out by Mulberry. I don't don't know exactly where it is. I just kind of nodded my head like I knew what they were talking about. And they went out to Mulberry Mountain, that area. And eight of the guys got to the top of the mountain. And they look back, and they're like, where where are the other two guys? And so finally they they look down the hill and they see from a distance these two guys coming really slow. And they get closer and closer and closer. And they're going up the hill. It's a pretty steep hill. And pretty soon they realize one of the guys who's in the front isn't pedaling. But the other guy, the other guy with one hand pushing from behind and the other hand holding onto the bike he's pedaling and pushing this guy up the hill and they get to the top and they're like what happened well the one guy says i have cramped up I, I i couldn't ride anymore and the other guy said i just had to do it now that's the stuff of urban legend right romans 15 verse 1 we who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak and, and not to, to please ourselves. We who are strong ought to bear the, with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul says, don't go selfie on me. He gets it. Our temptation in our life is to look out for number one. Paul says, no, 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 no. Help the weak. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. Fourth way that we, we love one another is, is patience. Patience. Paul gives us a great principle for 
for every situation. Verse 14, again, he says, be patient with everyone. The word patience here literally means to be long-tempered. It's the opposite of short-tempered. In some ways, especially in our culture, this may be the most difficult instruction of all. We are becoming increasingly impatient as a society. And we don't want to wait for anything or, or anybody. And we just want to give, give people solutions. We want to solve problems. We want people to shape up right now. But sometimes people just need someone to listen to. Now, this is really important. And I know because I've struggled with this. I, I try to overmanage this my whole life. Patience is the key that unlocks the door to the deepest relationships. Let me say that again. Patience is the key that unlocks the door to the deepest relationships. We can't have any significant relationship unless we're willing to be patient. And that patience looks like spending real time with real people and, and listening. I mean, really listening. So I'm going to encourage you. Let me just encourage you in this. When you get with somebody, it may be your spouse, it may be your child, it may be your grandchild, it may be your coworker. I'm going to encourage you. Turn your phone off. Eyes forward, heart and mind engaged. Nonverbal, all there. James chapter 1 and verse 4. But let patience have its, its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking, lacking nothing. Isn't that wild? Like James is like, do you want to be perfect, complete, and lack nothing? Like, I want that. Be patient. Be patient. Let me ask us a couple of difficult questions. First, are we there but not really there when it comes to our loved ones? Are we there but not really there when it Like, are your kids like, Man, Dad, you're here, but you're not really here. Like it's the phone, it's your show, it's your hobby, it might be your mom, it might be, might, might, might be your, your, your spouse, I don't know. Second question, have we wounded someone with an outburst of anger or impatience? If so... What do you suppose we need to do to remedy this and soothe the wounds? Let me encourage you. Go to that person. Sit them down and say, I'm sorry. Like literally be all there. Surprise them. Like they're waiting for you to pick up your phone or, or to get distracted or to get up and walk out. Just be all, be all there until it's uncomfortable for them. Overmanage it. Just sit there and listen and apologize and say, I want to be better at this. Will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? Fifth way, we love one another. We watch our motives. Verse 15, Paul says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. And this takes us back to the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Now think about that. Anyone been slapped on the right cheek lately? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Like someone slaps you on the right cheek. What do you do? Jesus says, oh, try this side. 
Try this side. Easier said than done, Jesus, right? So how do we respond when someone, when we become the object of another person's resentment or, or anger? Here's what the rest of verse 15, this is where it comes in. It's really important. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, he says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Here it is. But, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Notice that Paul says nothing about this striving to do good being contingent on whether or not we think someone deserves our kindness. In other words, we tend to say this, hey, I'll do good for them if they do good for me. Paul says, no, 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 we do good regardless. We do good regardless. We must resist the urge to fight fire with fire by, by repaying wrong for wrong. Please, please hear this. We cannot control how others treat us but we can control how we respond to them. Paul is saying that we must do our part and then God must do his part. Well, what, you say, Lee, well, what's, what's our, our part? Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, here's our part. Bless those who persecute you. And you say, this is so countercultural. Yeah. Like who does this? Jesus did. Paul says in, in, in Philippians to the church at Philippi, he says, have the same mind of who? Of Christ Jesus. Well, he goes on, verse 17. Here's, here's our part. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes you're doing all you can. They just don't want to. That's on them. Here's our part. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. Now, here's God's part. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Man, this is an issue of sovereignty. This is an issue of faith. This is an issue of trusting God to do what at times we just can't do. You can't control people, but you can control you. Well, not only as a family do we love each other in tangible ways, but secondly, this morning, let's go back to verse 12, and we see that as a family, we, we also love our leaders. Verse 12, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, we ask you, family members, to acknowledge those who work hard among you and who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Leaders and laity live in peace. Paul was a pastor and a church planner and an apostle. And he, he had also appointed pastors and elders in the church at Thessalonica. And he starts by saying that these spiritual leaders should be shown some, some love and some care and, and some respect. Now, I got to be honest, some, some congregations don't, they don't do that very well. You may have heard about the pastor who, who was in the hospital and the head of the elders came to visit him. And he said, Pastor, I want you to know, be encouraged. Um, our elders voted four to three. Um, to pray for your recovery. Now you may be wondering, what is, uh, what is Lee going to do with this passage? Is he going to tell us that we must love and respect him and Jim because they are our pastors? And the short answer is yes. But there's more. <laughs> First, let me, let me go on the record and say that for the last 11 plus years, 
that I've served here in 16 plus years, the gym has served here, we have been overwhelmingly loved, encouraged, and prayed for. So thank you. Thank you for showing your appreciation and respect. By the way, if all congregations did what you do, we'd have a lot healthier churches in the world. I mean that. This is an amazing body of believers. But these verses aren't just about Jim and I. They're also about all the spiritual leaders in our church. From the rest of the elders to the church staff and the hundreds of volunteers who serve the Lord by serving you. Look at verse 12 again. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge that those who work hard, to acknowledge those who work hard among you and who care for you in the Lord. So who qualifies? Well, Paul lays it out. All those who work hard among you and care for you in the Lord. That's a bunch of people here at New Heights. So because we're family and we're called to love our leaders, I'm going to ask you when we have um, our ministry time in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to find one of the tables located uh, on the sides of the gym and in the back. On those tables, we've provided pens and note cards so you can write a word of encouragement to someone who has invested in you or your children or your grandchildren. Now, if you need some suggestions on who you might um, want to write to, who you might encourage, who you might want to pour courage into you, Again, think about our elders or staff, or maybe it's a community group leader, a children's Sunday school teacher, a youth group leader, someone who drives the shuttle. If maybe it's someone on the welcome team or setup team or someone who works with disabilities or college ministry. Maybe it's someone from your past. Maybe it's someone who has invested in you and you just want to say thank you. So I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you to do something that's a little bit different. We do this for Global Sunday. We've never done it for something like this. I'm going to ask you to get, get up when I'm done praying and the worship begins to play. I'm going to ask you to get up. I'm going to ask you to go to these tables. I'm going to ask you to write notes of encouragement to these people. I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit who he might bring to your mind and how you might bless them. Then I'm going to ask you to take it a step further. After you write that that, that a note of encouragement, I'm going to ask you to hand it to somebody who you wrote it about. Or maybe if they're out of, out of, the, out of the state or out of the city, you can, you can send it to them. All right. Um, I'd like the prayer team to come up right now. Come on up. People will be here to my left and my right and all around this room, and they want to pray for you. Maybe you just need someone to pour courage into you. Maybe you're feeling weak and you're like, I, I, I need someone to hold me, someone to push me up that mountain. I'm going to encourage you also to come and take communion. Do it as a, as a family. Do it with somebody else. Find someone and go celebrate Jesus' sacrifice for you. But when I finish praying, I know you want to, you want to hear the worship and you can do that. I'm going to encourage you to get up and go to those tables. Let me pray right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for every member in the body of Christ. We're grateful that we're in this together. I pray right now that there would be an outpouring, there'd be a, a revolution, a revival of encouragement, God. And it starts right here in this service, in this church. That the world literally, John 17, would see how we love each other, how we encourage each other and it would be attractive to them. So right now, in Jesus' name, I just pray, God, that the body would love the body, that brothers and sisters would love each other as we're called to do. And I ask it in his name. Amen.